Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Terumah, which is Hebrew for gift or offering. These gifts are a reference to the 13 types of raw materials that the Jewish people are called upon to offer as contributions for the construction of the tabernacle, the portable structure that is to serve as the dwelling place for God's presence as the Israelites move through the desert. The parasha begins with this line, quote, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and let them take for me a portion from everyone whose heart motivates them. You shall take my portion. This is chapter 25, verse 1. What's unique about this line is that there are so many aspects of Torah that are mandatory, that are rules, laws, and commandments, yet here a different type of responsibility is defined. The heart has to be motivated to give an offering. If we are to contextualize this opening verse from Parashat Terumah, it is important to note that many commentators insist that the instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle were only given after the sin of the golden calf. Rashi, in particular, describes how the Torah is not always written in chronological order in which the events occurred. As we all know, the tabernacle is a sort of prototype to the holy temple, which will stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount was also to be the base of the Sanhedrin, the council of elders that presided over civil and judicial concerns. This is one reason to describe why Parashat Terumah immediately follows Parashat Mishpatim, even though their pairing breaks the linear chronology of Torah, as both ritual and law are designed to be conjoined in Judaism. But Rabbi Sforno takes this even further to assert that the construction of the tabernacle was only made necessary because of the incident regarding the golden calf. Parashat Terumah is introduced only after a catastrophic transgression, and this is significant if we are to understand the meaning behind the phrase whose heart motivates them. In a post-catastrophic world, what your heart prompts you to do matters, and this is a persuasive ecological message. Apart from chapters which pertain to Israel's descent into idolatry, the remainder of the book of Exodus revolves around the Mishkan, this is the tabernacle, which is a section of the Torah that Ramban refers to as the Book of Redemption. While the giving of the Torah at Sinai is considered the climax of the Exodus from Egypt, it wasn't made a permanent part of existence until the construction of this portable sanctuary. Portable here is the key word, because the Mishkan was a structure that could be taken apart, transported, and reassembled as the Israelites moved through the wilderness. After listing the contributions for the tabernacle, such as gold, silver, and copper, colored wool and linen, animal skins, wood, and oil, much of this parasha revolves around describing the design of the sanctuary and its various components. In short, there are four spaces to be aware of. 
an inner and outer sanctuary, which comprises what we call the tabernacle, the courtyard, and the surrounding enclosure. The tabernacle itself was divided into two chambers by a partition, the Holy of Holies, which no one could enter except the high priest on Yom Kippur, and the Holy, in Hebrew this is Kadosh, which can be entered by any Kohen to perform the service who is ritually pure. The inner chamber housed the Ark of the Covenant, in Hebrew Aaron, which contained the tablets of testimony that were given to Moshe on Sinai, i.e. the Ten Commandments, and on top of the Ark stood two winged cherubim. These are angelic beings, which, along with the Ark's cover, were hammered out of one continuous piece of gold. The menorah and the shulchan, the table that held the twelve loaves of showbread in Hebrew lechem ha-panim, were arranged in the outer sanctuary, where the incense altar also stood, although the specifications for this altar are given in the next parasha. This parasha describes what is known as the altar in Hebrew mizbeach, which was located in the tabernacle courtyard and was constructed from copper. There were also three walls of the tabernacle, which were made from 48 large planks of acacia wood. Each piece of wood was overlaid with gold, like the ark, although the wooden ark was covered from within and without with gold. The roof was made from three layers of fabric and animal hides, unifying everything that was inside of the tabernacle. And according to Or HaChaim, the ten curtains of the tabernacle symbolized the ten sayings with which God created the world. The entrance to the tabernacle did not have a wall. Instead, it consisted of an embroidered hanging on the eastern side of the structure, which was supported by five pillars. All of this was surrounded by an enclosure of lace hangings made from twisted linen and supported by 60 wooden posts. In sum, there's a whole world of commentary on the symbolism of the various components of the tabernacle, which are too detailed for the purposes of this essay. But suffice it to say that the tabernacle was an incredibly ornate and magnificent structure that stood as the centerpiece of spiritual life for the Jews in the wilderness. With that being said, I would like to discuss a few aspects of the Ark and the menorah as they relate to motivations of the heart and their influence on our engagement with forms of action that can or could have ecological significance. Firstly, in chapter 25, verse 11, we are told that the ark was covered with pure gold from within and from without, meaning that there were three layers to the ark that progressed from gold to wood, that being the acacia wood, and then to gold. Commentators note that this arrangement symbolized the Talmudic dictum that a Torah scholar must be consistent their inner character must match their public demeanor, their actions must conform to their professed beliefs. The assertion here is quite simple, that the individual is only motivated rightly when there is a connection between our inner reality and outer actions. In Kabbalistic thinking, 
the three layers of the ark are said to represent three dimensions of the human being. The most inner ark, made of pure gold and tucked inside the other two arks, reflected the most inner dimension of the soul, the divine spiritual essence of our identity. The middle arc, made of wood, reflected the more visible, conscious personality of the human soul. Just like wood, our feelings and attitudes go through many changes during our lives. We may develop and refine our wooden character so that it becomes exquisite and beautiful, or our personality may grow rotten and putrid. Our wooden self usually vacillates between extremes. Finally, the third and outer arc, conspicuous for all to see, reflected the Torah's blueprint for the most external stratum of the human structure, our behavior. The point here is to emphasize that the middle arc, made of wood, is the interface between the inner and outer worlds. It's the organic world of vulnerability and change. It is the world of the heart. There's an interesting piece of Midrash that describes how Jacob, while in Egypt, anticipated that the tabernacle would be built and that there would be a need for lumber. The walls of the tabernacle, in particular, required large planks of acacia wood, and Jacob knew that it would be impossible to find that kind of wood in the wilderness. In response to this need, he planted the trees in Egypt and instructed his children that when they left their exile, they should take the wood with them. In Hebrew, the word for acacia, shita, means bending. It's known as the bending tree because it bends to the side as it grows rather than growing up. This is an intriguing detail given that the Jews were commanded to make the planks of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing erect. This is chapter 26, verse 15. For how does one build a vertical plank to stand erect from a tree that has a natural propensity to bend? The etymology of the word for acacia, shita or shitim, shares its root with another word, shatut, meaning foolishness or folly. This is, of course, fascinating because there's a connection between the tabernacle and a particular type of wood that shares its etymology with the ultimate moment of folly in Jewish history, that being the descent into idolatry with the sin of the golden calf. Jacob also knew this would happen, which is even more intriguing as it alludes to the principle that there is no earlier or later in the Torah. As Rabbi Akiva once said, everything is foreseen and permission is granted. In this case meaning, everything is known, but we still have free choice, which demonstrates that Torah is operating in some metatemporal or atemporal realm, and also explains why a linear chronology in Torah is not always necessitated. With that being said, perhaps it can be inferred that foolishness can be made holy or unholy. There's a bi-directionality to the wood that built the ark and the tabernacle, and it's up to us to decide which way it will bend. It could be reasoned that this bending refers to the two inclinations of the heart, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov, 
one positive inclination that reaches up towards purity and God, and one negative inclination that gets lost in the travails of the material world. Either way, our character can be continually refined or made rotten by the condition of our heart, the middle arc of wood, the interface between the inner and outer worlds. In closing, I'd like to address a teaching in the Midrash Tanhuma about the menorah. In short, even after God revealed the design to Moshe and showed him a menorah of fire to better illustrate its form, Moshe still could not visualize how to make the menorah properly. As a result, Moshe was instructed to throw the piece of gold into a fire and a completed menorah emerged. Commentators explain that not only was this a miracle, but a demonstration of how miracles occur. First, we must do what we can, but if that isn't enough, then God comes to our aid. Similarly, at the time of the splitting of the sea, God commanded Moshe to split the waters by raising his staff, and it was only after Moshe had done so that God performed the awesome miracle. In Egypt, and throughout the years in the wilderness, Moshe performed acts that resulted in miracles. Clearly only God makes miracles, but he wants humans to initiate them. It's so important as the ecology of the world is facing certain change, that we strive to initiate a miracle. It may be difficult to conceptualize what that looks like, how we will nullify the constructs and corporations that are ruining our planet, but every day we can work on the condition of our heart by unifying our inner intentions with the realm of outer action. If you're feeling inspired to make a difference, get out there, act, serve, plant a tree. You never know when or how that tree might be needed. For all you know, the fate of the world is depending upon it. Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week.